Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. I'm Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And we are speaking to you from the hermetically sealed podcast chamber here at How Stuff Works. And, uh, you know, we were just talking the other day about uh, one of my favorite characters in uh, in the history of science. And that is one, uh, Tycho Brahe, or um, if you go with some pronunciations, um, Tusha Brahe, which, uh, which I'm not going to use. No, because then I would call him Tushy. Tushy Brahe. I couldn't help myself. Only close friends knew him as, as, uh, as Tushy. And I like Tycho, too, because he sounds like he might have been one of the members of Menudo. <laughs> now, um, just to put this in context, we're talking about a guy who lived between 1546 and 1601. And uh, he's been called one of the greatest observational geniuses of the age. Um, he made a number of uh, just really fascinating observations that really kicked science in the butt and got it going uh, in terms, especially in terms of uh, celestial mechanics, figuring out um, how the solar system is moving. Um, and this is really because he had a crazy obsessive nature. Right? Yes, yes, great, and and a little extra crazy too, which we'll get to in a second. But just to, to run through real quick the the science stuff about this guy, I uh, made precise observations that uh, with with the best instruments of the time that had not been made before. Right, he uh, invented a lot of the instruments yes. too, right? Uh huh. He. Um, yeah, he was particularly interested in the in the um, the movements of Mars, and uh, he provided the crucial data that later astronomers like Johannes Kepler would use to create their models of the solar system. Um, and he, uh, you know, he also uh, made some observations about comets, about supernova, and uh, just again, just he he applied this obsessive uh, view uh, to the cosmos and made a number of observations that were you know exceedingly helpful. In, uh, in figuring out how things are working. Yeah, and this was during a time, just for historical context, that uh, people thought that the cosmos were immutable. They mm-hmm. were divine and perfect and, I guess, an extension of God, right? Right. Yeah. And so they didn't think that, that there could be anything moving out there. And so when he saw a supernova and said, whoa, ho, that's actual, that's a new star, that that really actually turned everything on its head. Yeah, because it's like, oh, the the cosmos weren't just created at the dawn of time, you know, perfectly situated like a, uh, you know, something you would put up on the on the bookshelf. Right. Yeah. It just sent ripples through the religious world. Now, um the the fun part is that uh, he was also um he also dabbled in alchemy, which was a, a popular pastime of the, of the day. He lost his nose in a duel and wore a copper prosthetic in its place. Pretty he, awesome. Yeah. He had a pet moose that <laughs> sadly died when it drank beer and fell down a flight of stairs. Of course. Yeah. And, uh, and, and uh, of course, he, he, like as was the style in those days as well, he also kept a clairvoyant dwarf and a court jester. And uh, don't judge, because if we'd been living back in those times, we would be wishing, you know, that we could you know, have a court jester and a clairvoyant dwarf. Right. But what I hate about that is it wasn't the dwarf made to sit underneath the dinner table. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. That just seems a little... Well, and unusual. it's it's cruel, but, you know, you look back, this was a time when if you were a dwarf, I guess these were jobs that were available to you, you know? True, true. But I think what it points to is that this guy was pretty eccentric. Yes, yeah, he was He was a little nutty, um, and he also he also was quite a partier. Um, in fact, well, there are a couple of theories about his death. One is that he, uh, and they're currently looking into this, they exhumed his body and all. Um, one idea is that he, w- he was poisoned, uh, right. perhaps intentionally, uh, with mercury. 
But then the other popular theory is that he was just so into partying uh, and at the dinner table. You know, this is a big banquet hall type of thing, okay. you know, where you're sitting at the head of the table, just drinking and eating until you're about to burst. And in this case, perhaps literally did burst when his um, his bladder exploded because he didn't want to get up and go use the john because he'd miss the party. Right, of course. Yeah. There was lots of beer to be had. Yeah. <laughs> But again, this is a case where um, we had a, an, a, an obsessive, brilliant man. Yeah. And uh, by virtue of that brilliance, uh, you, you have a lot of weird things sort of popping up in his life. And, and it, you know, it's, it's kind of like um, the more complicated the, the mechanism, the more room for weirdness there is with the human mind. You, you sort of see this. It's like great people, like really interesting people right. tend to have like their more than their fair share of uh, Eccentricities, you know? Right, because I am, we had talked about this before, like the brain, someone said this, the brain plays with what it loves. So yeah. you see this maybe played out with someone like Tico is a pretty good example. Right. But he's obviously not the only scientist in the bunch who has a couple of eccentricities. Yeah. So we're going to look at a, um, at a, at a few a particular scientists, uh, who on, when you, when you, First, look at all their obsessions. You might say, "Oh, this guy was a little nutty," but when you uh, when you take it apart, they may or may not be that crazy. Right, right. Yeah. And I'm I'm thinking about Tesla too, right? Yeah. I mean, this guy was known as a manic genius who slept very little, who was completely obsessed with his research, mm-hmm. and in a very Barnum and Bailey sort of move, decided to use his own body to conduct electricity to show to audiences, which is just nuts. You got to <laughs> love that. Yeah. So let's let's kick it off by talking about uh, one of the greatest scientists of all time, uh, often referred to as just the father of modern science, and that is Sir Isaac Newton. Woot woot. Yeah. So and and we all know that his big discovery was the law of gravity. Uh, yes. Yeah. He had a. Um, he had, he gave us a number of things. He invented the reflecting telescope. Gave us a new theory of light and color. He uh, he found himself, you know, trying to figure out celestial mechanics. He needed a more robust mathematics to make it work. So mm-hmm. he invented calculus, or uh, of course, yeah. And uh, you know, and his three laws of motion are uh, pretty essential. And that's the law of acceleration, the law of action and reaction, and the, and he also devised the law of universal gravitation. We right. have a great article about him on the site, by the way. Just uh, search for Isaac Newton on HowStuffWorks.com. Um, and do he it also, now. yeah, do it, do it right now, then come back. Or do it while you listen. Uh, he also made advancements in chemistry and, uh, and again, just, just, you, you cannot underestimate his value to the advancement of science. Right. But I think there's one little detail or a couple little details that people sat on for hundreds of years because mm-hmm. it was like, hey, this guy is brilliant. He's done all this stuff. And by the way, he also wrote one million feverish words on the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. As in fact, spent a lot of his last 50 years, uh, you know, he's working on other things too, but he spent a lot of time, uh, working over theology in that, uh, complex melon of his. Yeah. And, and particularly about the apocalypse. And there, <laughs> there are a lot of different passages. Actually, you can look this up. It's pretty cool. But a lot of his notes are really cryptic. Mm-hmm. And they, I mean, you know, if if you're looking out of context too, it's sort of like the ravings of a madman. Yeah, I was particularly um, interested by by um, he, one of the things that he tackled uh, that he used again, obsessive intellect applied to something like uh, you know the Bible or in this case uh, the Book of Daniel, um, yes. the, the apocalypse, uh, yep. apocalyptic visions of Daniel. Um, he was able to uh, to to uh, to figure out that the uh, Catholic Church would. Uh, fall between uh, the years of 2035 and 2054. Right. Yeah. 
So get a margin of error in there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so that's for the next Dan Brown book, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and actually too, that, that was an astrological prediction. Mm-hmm. So he dabbled in that as well. Oh, yes. Yeah. Which of course, you know, during that time, astrology was actually pretty, the pretty standard sort of thing to look into, and a lot of people took it very seriously. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, doctors at the time used to bleed their patients with leeches based on astrological happenings and also schedule their uh, surgeries. So again, it's, it's pretty well enmeshed in the, in the culture at that time. Yeah. And I mean, there was a, it was also like astrology and, um, as we'll discuss, alchemy. These are both areas where I, I like to kind of think of them as, it's like science. Is this creature emerging from the muck, you know, like the fish learning to walk? Right. But it's still got real goo. Yeah. It's still, but it's still got a lot of slime clinging to it, you know? So it's, they're still going through the process for a while of figuring out where the creature begins and where the, you know, the slime ends. So the alchemy is the slime? Some aspects of the alchemy are the slime. That could one day become gold. Yeah. And if you take the water hose to that, to the slimy alchemy and hose it off, bam. Chemistry and metallurgy. Right, right. I'm, I, honestly, I don't know a whole lot about alchemy, but that's always what I think about. It's like someone basically trying to spin butter into gold. Yeah. You know? Well, a, a lot of it apparently related to creating like costume jewelry, like being able to, to figure out how to fake different metals. Okay. And and again, a lot a lot of it was metallurgy and chemistry. It was the cre- everything from like the creation of pigments to uh, to you know again making. Some, you know, fool's gold or something. Okay. So, so people that really ran with that, with the sort of counterfeiting uh, aspect of it. And today, a lot of people, you know, you mention uh, alchemy and they're just, it just, you know, rings of, you know, just bad, uh, not even bad science, but just like the, the just the opposite of science. Right. right. Um, but, but, at, but at the time, like there were a lot of, a lot of, there was a lot of chemistry, a lot of metallurgy, uh, to the practice. The only thing is that it was tied up with some, loopy or you know or unexplored unproven like theories yeah metaphysical yeah. and the and philosophy mm-hmm. like uh, in the western world uh, alchemy was established as a branch of science by um, by like the ancient greeks and um and and so a lot of and you really got into a lot of like interpreting um the knowledge in philosophical terms mm-hmm. so uh, so you get into really murky waters with all of that but like i say hose it down and you've got you do have some core chemistry and uh, metallurgy going on. So gotcha. obviously okay. it's going to interest somebody. Uh, I mean, this, this was the, you know, again, if you wanted to study those things, you ended up in this wheelhouse. Right. Well, and what I think is really interesting about that time period is that you've got Newton, you've got Kepler, um, all messing with alchemy and in this presumably probably not well ventilated rooms, mm-hmm. inhaling lead and mercury and playing and touching mercury. Uh-huh. Um, and what are those sort of effects? And and it's interesting that Newton, they some people think, some scholars think he actually suffered from lead and mercury poisoning. And same thing with Tycho mm-hmm. is that you know, it, or it may have been that his downfall wasn't necessarily his bladder, but he had you know, pretty high concentrations of mercury in some of the the of his beard hair, I believe. Yeah, <laughs> of course. So, which makes me that was he just like like he had like a foamy beer with mercury on the top. Or yeah, something. exactly. And I'm actually thinking about this mustache that one of, one of the portraits of him has like this very serious mustache yeah. that must extend down like a foot. So you got to think that it probably dipped into the mercury there at some point. Yeah. 
Uh, I, someone really needs to make, like, and maybe they do, uh, uh, let us know if they do, because uh, uh, I would like one. They need to make like a fake nose that you can wear over your real nose. Yes. That's shiny and brass and has the big giant uh, Tico mustache on it. Like, you know, you know, sort of like a, um, you know, fake mustache and glasses kind of deal. Mm-hmm. I think I know what you're going to be for Halloween next year. Interestingly, I was already thinking about being um, like the white Humpty Hump for uh, Halloween next year. So it's re- pretty much the same concept. Like Tico Bray was basically Humpty Hump before, uh, you know, before Digital Underground even existed. Yes. Yeah. Well, maybe you could mesh the two. <laughs> <laughs> but back to Newton for a second. Uh, there's a, a Newton biographer by the name of Jed Buckwald, and he makes the, the case that, that like that Newton's obsession with with everything from uh, you know from the movements of the stars to uh, to you know the apocalypse of, of Daniel the, the, these were all uh, these were all interlinked in a very complex fashion. It wasn't like you know he was going to be like all right I'm going to work on the stars till three and then oh I think I'll look at this you know mm-hmm. uh, that it was um, it, it was it was all linked together um, and and again it's like he approached gravity. Uh, you know, with, with this enthusiasm, but he also approached the religious texts. His, uh, he had this, you know, just really deep faith, just an all-encompassing faith. And he believed the universe was the creation of a rational God. So he thought, he sought the same, the same rationality in apocalyptic prophecy that he sought in the movement of the spheres. Um, but, but it's, it's important to, to mention though, that he wasn't, he wasn't like necessarily bringing all this theology into trying to understand the movement of the spheres. Again, he thought that the, this was a right. rational universe created by a rational God, and therefore he could rationally analyze the creation. Use, in other words, use science to understand that creation. So there was not none of this, like uh, you know, he wasn't going to. He was, used, he wasn't using one to justify the other. Right, right. He wasn't going to say like, oh, well, why is this the way it is? Uh, I guess it's just because that's the way God made it. Case closed. You know, right, like right. he was. He, this was a very scientific mind that uh, that applied the same rationale to other. Less scientific areas. So, like you're saying, that that same compulsion that drove him to to look at science was in the works with religion and alchemy, and so of, of course you couldn't separate that from those those two th- or three things now from that man. Right. He was going to cover it all, yeah. regardless. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, fascinating guy. I can only imagine he would be into fantasy football if he were alive today. Oh, of course. Yeah, or baseball stats. Yeah. yeah. Or, you know, the brackets too. Oh, gosh. Old March yeah. Madness. <laughs> <laughs> but, okay, so Kepler, who was Tycho's assistant, right? Uh-huh. Okay. And, uh, again, this is a man who lived 1571 to 1630. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and do you want to talk a little bit about what the sort of things that he did for yes. astronomy? All right. And so, his standing at that time? Yeah. Johannes Kepler was basically, he's basically heralded as the father of celestial mechanics. And, uh, and he was also a pretty um, religious dude. He believed that the the language of God was geometry. So Johannes Kepler is pretty much heralded as the the father of celestial mechanics. Um, he was responsible for, for such breakthroughs as figuring out that planets' orbits were elliptical and not perfect circles, um, which was you know pretty big because the circle is this perfect geomet- geometrical shape, and right. therefore you know a creation of God as you know he's going to work with perfect shapes, right? So so that was a little. Uh, little bit of a, a blow. And he did that using a lot of the data that was collected at the research center that Tycho started, right? right. So without that obsessive, like, looking at the sky every mm-hmm. night before you had a telescope, by the way, you wouldn't have that data to, to work off of. Yeah, he also figured out that the speed of anything orbiting the sun changes predictably according to the distance from the sun. The closer, the faster. Um, so, it, so we ended up getting Kepler's laws and... Um, 
and uh, and he created all these charts that were uh, ten times more accurate than those of Copernicus. So I mean, he's an extremely important guy in understanding how our solar system moves and 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 what laws are involved in these movements. Right. Like he was the authority at the time. Right. So it makes sense that you would have like the Pope coming to him and saying, "Hey, can you draft up an astrological chart for me and let yeah. me know what's going to go down here?" Yeah, he um, um specifically he served uh, Holy Roman Emperor uh Rudolf II as the imperial mathematician. And this was a job that seems to have frequently involved such tasks as say determining the planetary alignment at the births of Caesar and Muhammad. Or, uh, you know, astro- astrological predictions for the future, the, the meaning, uh, quote unquote of, uh, supernova 1604, which came to be known as Kepler's supernova. Uh, so yeah, this guy was, uh, was a practicing astrologer as well as, uh, the father of celestial mechanics. Yeah. And so, and, and I think to sort of give some context there about being like the mathematician mm-hmm. with, you know, capital the, the, if you look at Tycho again, his right. duel was over who was the best mathematician, right? Oh, man. When he was in school, it was with another student. So, I mean, the weight of that, can you imagine? And Kepler is is, is given this title of, like, you are the head wizard mathematician. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, it uh, On the surface, it's it's interesting to look at, and you're, you're like, uh, like, oh, well, wait, he was, you know, this gifted, uh, you know, um, uh, mathematician and he, you know, he had totally understood what was, or he had a better understanding of how the, the, the planets were moving and, and what the stars meant than anybody alive. But yet he was also more than willing to say, yeah, I'll look at the stars and tell you what the future is going to be. It's, it seems a little, $50. Yeah. It seems a little weird, but that's part of it. It's like, Johannes Kepler, I got to eat, right? Yeah. So, yeah. And, and especially if you're a benefactor, uh, and is one of the most powerful, you know, men in the Western world, you know, and he comes to you and you ask for something like this. Yeah, you do it. Of course. Yeah. And, and I think that what, um, really distinguished him as an astrologer during that time is that one of his first predictions was basically saying, okay, in 1595, we're going to have extreme cold and there's going to be a Turkish invasion. <laughs> and then all those things came true. And of course, when you look at it now, you're like, well, of course there's extreme cold. I mean, you could, I mean, the old farmers, Almanac is basically the same thing in predicting when you're going to have cold spells and all sorts of weather patterns. And then Turkish invasion, well, I mean, maybe just have to be in the know about what's going on in the world labels and, and yeah. are able to say, oh, yeah, and by the way, I think this is going to have, there's going to be a conflict. <laughs> so it's not too crazy, right? Yeah. I mean, we're, we're not saying that he had precognition or that the stars were telling him that. Right. I mean, you can certainly look at bet. patterns and predict things, yeah. right? And he probably had a lot of really cool looking charts to back it up because he did. He oh, created yeah. a lot of charts. Um, I mean, it would be like the fanciest PowerPoint presentation of the time oh, yeah. now, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's. Um, I, I do love the idea that that you know, like a medieval monastery where you, instead of like you know illuminators working the scriptorium, you yeah. have they'd be working on PowerPoint presentations. But um, <laughs> but again, think of the um, think of the the uh, the analogy I made earlier about the creature emerging from the muck. It's, yeah. That's kind of the uh, relationship between astronomy and astrology. There was still a lot of uh, astrological astrological slime clinging to um, to the beast of astronomy. So if you were working um, in the in the field of astronomy, and even if you're a, a really serious astronomer like Kepler, you're going to have to dabble with some of the slime. Right. So um, and, and also I and I think there was also a sense. Uh, I, I'm, I'm kind of going off here, but I, I can't help but think it's like you're you're a guy that's really gifted like Kepler, and you probably have a a, a significant amount of intellectual pride, and. 
there's going to be a certain expectation from a lot of people. It's like, hey, you really know how uh, planets work, so uh, can, do you mind telling me what the future is going to be? And, you know, you can't say, you well... can't help it. Yeah, you can't say, well, actually, I'm a serious uh, astronomer, and uh, you can't actually tell what the future is going to be based on the stars. They'd be like, what? This guy doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm going right. to go ask Joe down here, who runs the uh, local astrology center, and he's going to he's gonna totally straighten me out. And, and meanwhile, Joe, like, knows nothing about um, the shape of a planetary... Right, and gets uh, all the yeah. glory. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, you're right. I, I don't think that his ego could resist. Yeah. Yeah. This presentation is brought to you by Intel, sponsors of tomorrow. So when you look at, at uh, Johannes Kepler uh, and, and take the uh, the seemingly crazy uh, stuff about um, astrology, and you uh, and you compare it with his uh, his actual scientific uh, achievements, I, I think it all weighs out. Uh, uh, the crazy stuff was more um, due to the time in which he was living and the uh, the reality of his. Uh, his uh, obligations to uh, his benefactors. So he was an obsessive opportunist. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I can see that. I imagine he really got into the astrology stuff too. I mean, he he he, he kind of downplayed it, uh, but but I imagine he had some fun with it. Yeah, with, I, I I see that. Um, so I don't know. Let's let's propel a little bit more in the future. Yeah, and say about like I don't know, 1958. Yeah, and we're we're also this this the next scientist is not quite on the same level. No, <laughs> no, a, that should be said that yeah. he's he's in he's in Terence McKenna territory. Yeah. So while the while Newton and Kepler and and Tycho are all examples of guys who, despite any seeming crazy uh, that they had going on, uh, they still made huge important contributions to science, right. and their and 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 again their contributions are just above reproach. There's no questioning them. But when you start talking about John C. Lilly, who was born in 1915 and died in 2001, um, you see a case where the scientific research kind of goes off the road uh, quite a bit or crawls yeah. back into the muck and, but, <laughs> and covers itself with slime. That's right. Or this may be a little strong. The but, road to hell is covered in primordial slime. Yeah. Yeah. Or something like that. Uh, or good intentions. Yeah. This is the guy who was really interested in interspecies language, right? So he, in particular, dolphins and communicating with dolphins. Yeah. And this was before, too, that we had such an understanding of, of how complex dolphins are in terms of their brain function yeah. and their communication. Like if you go back to the 1950s, um, there wasn't a lot of talk about, oh, dolphins are smart and peaceful, you know, or right. or, or even like the you know different headlines about, oh, dolphins are kind of perverted. Um, because, you know, the, you've heard about the thing where they, they like, uh, we went into this into a previous podcast. Um, uh, called "Are You Smarter Than a Dolphin?" Uh, it's available on iTunes, and uh, they will occasionally look in on people. On very, there's a certain segment of the population that has so much money that they can afford a private submarine with a window on the side. Yeah, that's me. Okay, mm-hmm. well, they they will take if you're this type of person. You know, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to go down and you're going to make love in front of that window. Of course, right? And uh, these people are quickly finding that dolphins will come and watch. You know, I'm kind of making the yucky face just because yeah. of what we're about to talk about. Yeah. So, so anyway, but at this time, nobody really thought about it. But then, May 1958, John C. Lilly presents a paper before the American Psychiatric Association, and uh, he made some really dramatic cha- uh, claims about uh, their intelligence, about their linguistic abilities, mm-hmm. uh, and the, the evidence wasn't 
particularly strong, scientifically speaking, but it, but it wasn't like crazy. Like he wasn't just completely going off, off the deep end either. Right. And they couldn't exactly recreate this data, right? When they tried to replicate studies right. later on. But it was like, you know, you see this a lot with stuff. Like suddenly there's a study and it's really huge. Yeah. And, uh, the newspapers, uh, across the U.S. just ran with it. They were like, whoa, dolphins are super smart. And, uh, and it, and it really kicked off, uh, there was this kind of a dolphin craze, like, um, that, that would, uh, that would kick off after this. So, I mean, for starters, suddenly Lily gets like a, just a string of like crazy, uh, grants, like federal research grants. Okay. So he's, I mean, he's got a ton of money. Yeah. He's, he's rolling got rolls of bills. Yeah. yeah. And he like sets up a laboratory and on St. Thomas and the U.S. Virgin Islands. I mean, so far this is sounding fine. Yeah. And, and they say at his peak, Lily was receiving upwards of half a million dollars a year in grant money. And this is like, you know, this is again, this is like late fifties, early sixties. Yeah. Uh, and in 61, he followed it up with his book, Man and Dolphin, which got a little crazier. Um, but, but also like, but, but not so crazy that it was completely turning people off. Like, like here's a quote from it. Eventually, it may be possible for humans to speak with other species. I have come to this conclusion after careful consideration of evidence gained through my research experiments with dolphins. If new scientific developments are to be made in this direction, however, certain changes in our basic orientation and philosophy will be necessary. Okay, again, which is kind of foreshadowing for crazy, but at the right. time, you know, <laughs> it sounds it still sounds okay to me. It's okay. I'm I'm with you. You're yeah. you're in the Virgin Islands. You're going to be conducting some experiments, and in fact, one of your experiments is going to be based on what they thought at the time was the basis for language that children learn language from a, a close relationship with their mother and being around their mother, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Enter Margaret Howe, research assistant. Okay. Uh, I, I, you could say unsung hero of the story or victim of the story. I don't know. Oh, I, I don't want to think of her as a victim. No. Okay. All right. So unsung hero, she lives with a dolphin. And how would you live with a dolphin? You would probably submerge a two bedroom house, right? right. That's the best method. Right. With it, all that grant money you got. Yeah. Um, you've got, you know, half a million dollars rolling around. Why not make a bed out of sea, um, water or salt water so that the dolphin could always come and cuddle up to you? Now, while you were in repose. I should, I should mention that at the same time, while this is beginning to happen, uh, other researchers are looking into the, into the, the dolphin communication okay. thing like crazy. So, uh, like, like a, about a half a dozen other researchers. The U.S. Navy's looking into possibilities. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and then like 1963, Flipper hits the air. So, like, dolphin mania is running wild. Right. People are looking into it. The Navy's looking into it. Now back to the submerged <laughs> two-bedroom house. Okay. So, <laughs> if we haven't piqued your interest enough, here we go. So, I mean, I've already mentioned that there, there's a water-soaked bed, and, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of play between Margaret and the dolphin Peter. And they spend a tremendous amount of time together playing ball and trying to do language lessons with Peter. Uh, Peter's not so responsive, though. And it turns out that he's not really interested in her as a mother figure, but m- more as a, a partner. Mm-hmm. And begins nudging her and nuzzling, and to the point where she has to start wearing boots, galoshes, so she doesn't get bruised. And she carries around a broomstick to fight off his advances. Uh-huh. And so they're a little bit concerned, and they say, "Okay, you know, maybe we should just let him out, and he can have conjugal visits with other dolphins, right? And he can get out of the system." They do that. He comes back, but no, he still is interested in her as as a his lady friend and uh and he actually changed his tactic for wooing her and begins to show his genitalia to her 
Yeah. So that's not the end of the story, though. I mean, you wish it were, right? <laughs> but John C. Lilly says, you know what? Maybe we should just see if he's more cooperative if if perhaps Peter can get to third base with Margaret Howe. Yeah, and uh, you know we're not going to go into a lot of detail on no. this, but but what ends up happening is something that actually happens at farms across America between uh, um, <laughs> between between a farmer and his livestock in a perfectly acceptable manner. So, um, that, that, yeah, I guess I guess if you yeah. yeah, I mean it happens, right? Yeah, and and uh, the thing here is that John C. Lilly thinks, well, if I could just have another year. Doing this, I could really make some progress. Right, but and he runs out of funding at that point. Yeah. Well, also, you, you're probably people maybe think, well, where's Lily in all this? He's not. Well, I'll tell you where Lily is. Yeah. He's in his isolation chamber, which uh, if, if you've ever seen the movie Altered States, that's roughly based on the kind of stuff uh, that, li- that Lily was was up to at the time, uh, which is like this this like water filled like chamber, lightless that you just isolate yourself in, and so then it's sensory deprivation. Yeah, sensory deprivation. And then he would take like a ridiculous amount of LSD mm-hmm. and use this uh, as a way to try and commune with like the dolphin mind. And weirdly enough, all of his funding was pulled. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he, during this time, he also approached NASA, suggesting that he had a breakthrough uh, that was also going to be be useful uh, when we started encountering aliens. Um, but yeah, he, he lost his funding. He evidently kept doing LSD a lot. Um, I don't think it's... It's uh, it's difficult to judge uh, in, in saying that he he probably did too much LSD. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, and yeah, and then finally he just uh, released the dolphins into the wild and claimed that they had quote finished reprogramming him, and uh, and basically yeah lived out the rest of his life uh, you know, sort of uh, going after uh, other dolphin kind of crazy dolphin related ideas, publishing things on his website about it and. Uh, just kind of a crazy, crazy man. Yeah, I mean, I kind of think that the Ig Nobel awards should just retroactively. Yeah, yeah, the Ig Nobel do, prizes. Yeah, yeah they, he. I think he deserves one. Yeah. If he has not, he, he may have received one. They've they've been around for a number of years, and I can't bring all of their uh, winners uh, to mind right off the bat. But, but, but L- Lily is such an interesting case in that you you look early on, you can see it. This is a this is a man that was obsessed. Yeah, like all absolutely. the cases we've looked at, this man was obsessed, and. And early on, you see a man that that probably had a lot of potential and, and a lot of promise, and it just the the uh, the vessel kind of slowly goes off the road. <laughs> and it started with the money. Yeah, the money, the drugs, the drugs, the corruption. Yeah, it's like a rock and roll uh, saga right it, here. It yeah, absolutely with was with dolphins. Yeah. You know, now, at the same time, he can be credited. Uh, you know, as scientifically uh, fallible as, as that first paper you know, seems to have been. He did set off a trend that led to, to, that, that really led to our current understanding of dolphin intellect, you know? I mean, he, he kind of set the fire and then other people had to sort of, you know, control the fire. But, uh, but the, uh, the, the fruits of, of that first paper are still uh, evident in uh, dolphin research. Yeah. No, I mean, there's a lot to be explored there for sure. Yeah. Not in the manner he did, but yeah. I, was, I was thinking that you were going to say the trend that he started was like airbrushing dolphins. Oh, no, like no. onto vans or something. I, I I can only imagine it has something to do with it. There is there does seem to be this interesting like hippie dolphin. Uh, I mean, it, because the idea that that dolphins are so uh, intelligent. I mean, it, it really is this sort of like connection with nature type of deal because you, right. you can suddenly realize, well, this is a really intelligent uh, being, and uh, and and it kind of turns your you know t- 
typical perception about man and nature on its head. Yeah, and I, there are a lot of myths out there about mm-hmm. dolphins, and 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 actually, like there's some evolutionary interesting stories out there with dolphins. But yeah, people, uh, humans are gaga for dolphins. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, I'm pretty sure that you can't take a boatload of LSD and talk to one. I tried. It hasn't happened. I'm kidding. I have never tried. Yeah, like the That's, I told yeah. you that, uh, that the Navy looked into this, and uh, based on uh, uh, on this uh, on one particular study, they they found that you could train them to a certain extent. But I mean, they were trying to teach them to talk as well because they were. Right. They, they don't have vocal cords, folks. Yeah, it's <laughs> well, you know, they were like trying to say, okay, this sound could be this letter, and it just yeah. it, it didn't work out. They're very bright creatures, but but it kind of underlies the the basic anthropomorphic uh, trap of trying to look at any animal's intelligence. Right, and I think that I think you're right that they when they first were looking at them, they thought, oh, well, they've got very large brains like ours. Well, now we know they don't have as as many cells right. as we do. And, and that's not to say that they're not incredibly intelligent. It's just that their their brains aren't like ours, you know. Duh, so right, like we tend to view everything as kind of like we're the high school seniors, and then every <laughs> everything else in the animal kingdom is like in a different grade descending down. That's right. And then and it's kind of like we're we're at the top, and we're like, hey, dolphins, what's what's up? When are you going to graduate? Yeah, and, when are you going to start hanging out with us and our yeah, clique and talking but, to us? But it's it's not like that at all. Like the dolphin is an incredibly smart creature, filling the niche that it fills. We're, you know. A, well, a reasonably smart creature filling the niche that, that we feel, you know. So it's um, you, you just can't look at it like this uh, this stairway to uh, to anthropomorphic heaven, you know. It's uh, it's, wow. it's entirely different uh, different setup. I like what, I like the way you did that. Yeah, like yeah. like I it's one one I think actually it was Ricky Gervais that pointed out that the slug, the garden slug, as grotesque as it is, is perfect. Like. Nature has has an evolution has led up to the, this is the the culmination right here and it may not seem pretty and it sure as heck may not may may not have an intelligence on par with human intelligence but it's it's perfectly filling that niche and it's and you know give it give it some credit it's not screwing up other creatures' niche right so, so let a dolphin be a dolphin yeah and quit trying to ride the dolphin well yes yeah yeah just let the dolphin be a dolphin. So I don't know. I think I think we've covered that. I think we've covered the the obsessive nature of scientists. I mean, there are so many more examples, mm-hmm. um, which we may get to in future podcasts. Yeah, I mean, there's God Tycho. I mean, that's he's he could have his own podcast and, and does actually uh, the uh, stuff you missed in the history class podcast. Oh, uh, that's right. Uh, yeah, they should have one out now. Okay. Yeah, you guys should check that out. Yeah, um, but I'm also even thinking about the Manhattan Project physicist Richard Feynman, who decoded mine hieroglyphics and picked locks in his spare time. Yeah. I mean, again, there's just there's like a million examples of this obsessive nature, and thank goodness because I mean, so many of the discoveries that we get to enjoy now wouldn't have happened if if you didn't have that kind of mind working on the problem. Exactly. Yeah, and, and speaking of that, what's going on with the uh, listener email? Oh, yes, we do have some listener email here. Yeah, we have a couple of comments here from uh, readers uh, on our Facebook page. Um, Lisette uh, points out, and these are both in response to our uh, Inside Out podcast. Eversion. Eversion, yeah. She said, quote, uh, this is a little behind, but the info gleaned about eversion from your podcast made for a very funny dinner date with my man. Way to keep the spark in my relationship. Which is great. That was a sexy, sexy podcast. It was. I and, yeah, I mean, that that's what we were going for. So that's, yeah. <laughs> that's cool. Um, and then uh, um, Cynthia uh, responded uh, to our um, discussion about the sea cucumber. And she says, quote, 
I just listened to your podcast regarding things that turn inside out. I just wanted you to know that I believe sea cucumber is an acquired taste. My sister doesn't like it, and every time I go to a Chinese restaurant with my family, my mom always orders the sea cucumber dish because she knows I love them. They taste very good. So there you go. You know, I have to take her on that. And, I mean, you've got an entire culture that, like we said, has uh, dedicated a thousand haiku to this, the humble sea cucumber. Right. So we can only assume that they are absolutely delicious. I need to try it the next time I'm at a restaurant. Uh, I wish I weren't a vegetarian. <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd join you. So if you want to learn more about these topics, uh, be sure and check out, well, first of all, we do, we do have the podcast, Are You Smarter Than a Dolphin? And... Uh, Jessica Toothman wrote an excellent article uh, titled, Are Humans the Smartest Animal? Which is a nice look at uh, human intellect compared to others. And uh, and then also there's, uh, if you want to have, learn a little more about the uh, the rise of science and uh, guys like uh, Kepler, then check out How the Enlightenment Worked by Kristen Conger. And if you want to learn more about John C. Lilly and Margaret Howe, check out the Mental Floss article called Four Experiments That Should Never Be Recreated. Right. And also John C. Lilly's website is still up. Uh, it was the website that he, that was maintained during, while he was still alive and has continued to remain online since his death in 2001. It is awesome. Yeah. It's worth it. It's a maze of, of, uh, of, of interesting content, including this, this really cool GIF image where it's like Lilly, um, you know, it, you know it's like older, um, you know, older white dude, white hair. And he has this, uh, like some sort of like, psychedelic swirl going on in his forehead and then there's like a dolphin on each side of him it's it's great entering the portal yeah into his brain exactly and uh be sure to check out again facebook and twitter uh we are blow the mind on both of those uh we keep that updated with all sorts of cool um how stuff works article links uh blog links as, for, as well as links to other interesting things on the web that we just happen across every day and drop us a line at blow the mind at howstuffworks.com yeah, tell us what blows your mind. Do you find some sort of, uh, you know, cool bit of science that you run across on, on the web or in your research, uh, you know, especially if you're like a professional scientist, let us know. Cause, uh, you know, this is not just what blows our minds, what blows yours. So clue us in. All right. Yep. Blow the mind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.